Okay, gang, take your Bible and go to Philippians chapter 4, please. Actually, make it chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll get there in a minute. I love that song. Um, Ours is a God who is a good, good father. Again, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity from every other world religion is that we approach our creator and call him father. That's a very big deal. Uh, think about that sometime. Uh, he has a plan for your life, and he has a plan for my life. And today, I'm going to talk about at least part of God's plan for my life, and something I do every four or five years. Uh, I'm not real hip about doing this, but I've been told I need to do it. But about every four or five years, I kind of tell my story. Uh, there are a lot of new people in our church, a lot of people that have only attended for a few months or a couple of years. And, and, and I want to take this opportunity today to to introduce you to my father um, and his story for me. Because when you leave here today, I want you to recognize a handful of things, but, but one of the most important is that he also has a story for you. So, so even though I'm going to tell my story today, please don't look at it that way. It's not my story. It, it's our story. It's your story. Uh, and we're all part of, part of God's story. So I begin with my jersey. Uh, I am a proud Cleveland Browns fan. Can I get an amen? There we go. Atta boy. Appreciate that. There are two of you. Uh, I have a dear friend named Terry Cole. He lives in North Carolina. He and his wife, Dear, retired. They used to attend this church. And he said, Mike, when you're a Cleveland Browns fan, that just means everything else in your life is that much better because the Browns establish a new low. <laughs> Let me tell you how I became a Cleveland Browns fan. I, I grew up outside of Tampa, Florida. Now, in 1977, I'm 11 years old. And the only team in the area was the Buccaneers, okay? Now, if you go back to the early or mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s, remember those creamsicle uniforms the Tampa Bay Buccaneers used to wear? And, and, and kind of that, you know, flamboyant pirate on the side of their head? Um, that was my team, and they were lousy. Let's just be honest. They stunk. Uh, preachers aren't supposed to say this word in church, but they sucked. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible, and so every weekend when we'd watch the Bucks and they'd be behind by 40 points in the third quarter, I would flip over to the AFC channel and guess who was always playing? Cleveland Browns for whatever reason. Now back then the Browns were strong. They were known as the Cardiac Kids. Uh, Bernie Kosar was their quarterback. Clay Matthews Sr., he was their middle linebacker. Uh, they'd run right over you. I mean, every year the Browns were in the fight for the championship, for the playoffs. And sadly, every year they lost, but they were always there, Okay. So anyway, as I grew up, eventually I turned loose to the Buccaneers and I became a, a single-minded Cleveland Browns fan. Now, when I was a child, it meant a lot to me to be good at what I did. Um, I can remember striking out one season. I think it was my first year of varsity baseball in the 10th grade. I struck out three or four times that year at the plate. And in my mind, that was unacceptable. And next year I set a goal not to strike out at all. And believe it or not, I didn't strike out at all. Uh, if, if someone else could do it this well, then I was going to do it a little bit better. That's kind of the way my mind worked. Uh, I don't know where I got that from, if that came from my mom or from my dad, but that competitive spirit in me uh, created many of the defining moments I'm going to describe to you today. Now, that's an interesting term, defining moments. Um, I'm going to say 15, 20 years ago, I don't know who coined it, but I've heard Oprah use it, Andy Stanley use it, I've heard Dr. Phil use it, 
Defining moments are those moments in, in, in our lives of consequence, those moments that are usually associated with some kind of event or circumstance that, that tend to define who we are. And some of those are negative for, for you and for me. We have negative defining moments. Uh, you may have grown up in a broken home, and that is a defining moment of sorts. Uh, you may have been diagnosed with an illness that's serious. That is a defining moment uh, of sorts. Uh, they can also be positive. You know, I, I embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ when I was in high school. I, I, I invited Jesus to be the Lord in my life. Uh, that is a defining moment. Um, when you get married and you, and you think about family and kids, that's a defining moment. When you graduate college and you get that diploma and you start your career, that's a defining moment. What's going to happen next? How are you going to respond to this change in circumstance? Uh, how are you going to react what will you do? I'm going to put this definition on the screen. It's rather lengthy and wordy, but bear with me. A defining moment are those moments in time, usually surrounding an event or experience of consequence. In other words, they're not little things. They're typically big things, and we've all got them, okay? Surrounding an event or experience of consequence that drive us to a decision or a conclusion that influences us or defines us for many years to come. Okay, you follow that? Again, it's rather wordy, but one more time, let me read it. Defining moments are those moments in time usually surrounding an event or experience of consequence that drive us to a decision or a conclusion that influences or defines us for years to come. Again, you'll meet people and sometimes they'll introduce themselves using their defining moments. Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a recovering alcoholic. That's a defining moment for someone. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a cancer survivor. That's a defining moment for some. Hi, I know what you're saying because I too am a survivor of sexual or physical or emotional abuse. Hi, I'm the product of a broken home. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I have a special needs child. Defining moments will touch us all. Before we get into this, you need to understand that my story is not unlike yours because defining moments are going to touch us all. You see, there are, it's impossible to miss them. You're going to be touched by events, circumstances of consequence. These aren't little things that you forget about in a few days or weeks or years. These are big events. In fact, I'll put this on the screen. Defining moments will impact us all. I'm going to read you something starting in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 4. The Apostle Paul is the author, and if you know the story of Paul and how he came to faith, this is going to make a lot of sense to you, okay? Read with me in verse, end of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in their flesh, believe me, Paul says, I have more, okay? Now, what Paul is saying here is, if you think that you do things that impress God, believe me, I do more things that impress God. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, if you think you can somehow manufacture your own righteousness before God, believe me, I can manufacture more. If, believe me, if you put your resume up against mine, Paul is saying, I would win. Okay? I have more. Look at verse 5. He begins to list. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was part of Jewish custom and law. Of the people of Israel, I'm full-blooded Hebrew. Of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most prestigious. 
I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were professionals at keeping the law. As for zeal, verse 6, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. In other words, Paul is saying, I am pretty impressive when you put me up before God. God is bound to be proud of what I'm able to contribute to the process because look, here's who I am. Sometimes I think we feel this way. I know there was a time in my life, believe it or not, and I'm ashamed to admit it, when I felt that way. Paul knew who he was and who he was was pretty impressive. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my story. I was one of those popular kids in high school. I went to a small school about the size of Metter or Portal High School, and sometimes in a little pond, it's easy to be a big fish. And, and I played quarterback on the football team, and I played basketball and baseball and soccer. And I was president of my classes, you know, like 10th grade, 12th grade. Uh, we were very active in our church youth group. Um, it was very important to me to excel in what I did. In my mind, that was part of making God proud. Again, I didn't understand grace when I was 16. I didn't understand salvation when I was 17. But it was 17 years old when I went away to summer camp. We were in the mountains of Tennessee. And at 17 years, my junior year of high school, or right before my senior year, I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I said, okay, Jesus, you're the boss in my life. I'm going to follow you. I believe you are who you claim to be. Uh, you're more than just Sunday school Jesus to me. I want you to be the Lord, the leader, the primary influence in my life. So I did. All of that led me to be very outgoing, very optimistic. I hunted, I camped, I dated, I played ball. Uh, I even sang in the choir. And, and for you young people, especially guys that think that's not cool when you're 17, that's where all the girls are in the choir. See, that's where all the girls were. Um, I went away to school, uh, Tennessee Temple University, Chattanooga, Tennessee. This was a school you could go and be a teacher, you could be a businessman, you could be a lawyer for that matter, but it also had a seminary attached to it. And I thought at that time that I was going to be a coach or I was going to be a student minister. I, I never dreamed I'd ever be a pastor of a church. I thought I would work as a, as a part of the team and I would primarily serve young people or at least college age people. Well, Living in Chattanooga was a thrill. Uh, I was far from home. It took 10 hours. Back then, the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. And when I get on I-75 there in Chattanooga, it'd take nine and a half, 10 hours uh, to get to my home just outside of Tampa. So I didn't go home very much, but every chance I got the opportunity to go home, of course, I did. What I did do a lot of in Chattanooga was explore. If you've ever been to Chattanooga, man, 30, 40 miles around Chattanooga, some of the most beautiful country you'll ever see. I mean, there are springs and lakes and rivers and creeks and mountains and, and caves, and it's one thing after another. So in the midst of playing baseball, because I went up there to play baseball for the team and, and going to school, uh, we got familiar with the outdoors around Chattanooga, Tennessee. I remember I used to take my books up in a book bag to Sunset Rock on Lookout Mountain, and I'd, I'd read there, and I'd study there, and I'd even write papers up there. And while I was up there, there were a bunch of young guys. They, they got together, and they, they repelled off the side of Sunset Rock. Now, if you know what repelling is, uh, if you don't know what repelling is, think of that Army commercial 
where the army people come down out of that helicopter, you know, they got the rope and they're going down. That's what rappelling is. Uh, you tie off your rope and you throw it over the cliff. You wear this special harness. You hook up this special figure eight ring and off you go, you know, right down the side of the mountain. Well, I was sitting there one day with my girlfriend and we were watching this happen. I wasn't getting much study done because I wanted to do what they were doing. So finally, I just asked, can I do that? He said, sure. He tied me up and I went off. Well, that lit a fire in me like you wouldn't believe. It was the most exhilarating thing you could imagine. Uh, they actually taught us to tie up backwards. You could put the ring in the back and you could go off the mountain face first. You didn't even have to walk down the mountain. You could just leap like Spider-Man. It was the coolest thing you'll ever feel. That was repelling. But as is often the case with 18 and 19-year-olds, after a while, you've been there and you've done that. So we started free climbing. No ropes, just a pair of $200 rock climbing boots and a bag of chalk for your hands. And you either start at the top and go down, which was much more difficult, or you started at the bottom, the Tennessee River, and you climbed up to Signal Point. We got to where we did that at least once a week and oftentimes twice a week. It would take hours to ascend that mountain. But when you finished at the top, it was such a great sense of accomplishment. It was more fun than I had ever experienced in the swamp country of Florida. Now I'm in the mountains doing something I didn't know that I could do. To me, that was excellent. So we did more and more and more of it. Well, it was a cool November afternoon. It was November 2nd, 1984. In between practices, me and two other guys, we went to the top of, uh, or excuse me, we went to the bottom of Signal Mountain, parked our cars, having dropped one at the top already, and we started our ascent. Now, we had done this a dozen times. We felt like we were good at this. I was actually at the age of 18 or 19 years old. I was thinking, you know, one day I'm going to be a mountain rescue guy. I mean, that just seemed really cool to me. But in the middle of that climb, what, the way it worked basically is you had to hike, you did a lot of hiking, and then you'd come to a 100-foot rock face, and you'd climb it. And then you'd hike a little more, and then you'd come to another 50-foot rock face, and you'd climb it. And it would take a, maybe, I don't know, two, three hours to finally get to the top. In the middle of that climb, I was resting, because if you've ever done something like that, it is incredibly taxing on your body. I mean, I was tired, I was weary. And so I was resting and holding my place when I lost my grip, and this happened. Thanks to a five-hour rescue effort and the work of more than 50 people, an 18-year-old Temple student is alive today. Mike Holt fell from a top signal point while hiking with two friends late Thursday. Photographer Butch Manning and I were with the rescue workers for much of the night, and for more, and that's what out turned out to be a happy ending. I was there with him as I held him, and I, I kept wondering any minute when he was gonna die. It all began with three friends on a hiking trip. It ended some five hours later, after one of the boys, 18-year-old Mike Holt, lost his footing, falling 60 feet down the mountain onto a sharp tree stump, puncturing a lung. 50 people aided in the youth's rescue, and it wasn't easy. A much-needed helicopter was bogged down in bad weather in Nashville. The only decision was to repel down the mountain to the victim. It took three hours to bring him down the mountainside. But it worked. It wasn't a pretty sight, but at least he was alive. It was the second accident in the past month on Signal Mountain. Unfortunately, the last person wasn't so lucky. This time, there were 50 people to make sure Mike Holt made it. He remains in stable condition at Erlanger Hospital. It's been 30-plus years, and every now and then I'll wake up in the middle of the night having had a little flashback kind of dream. I'll never forget falling and that sensation of falling. 
the minute I realized I lost my grip and I was coming away from the rock, I looked down immediately and I saw uh, what looked like, well, the ledge looked bigger than that, but it wound up being only about this wide. It was about 10 feet, maybe 15 feet below me. And I thought, I'll land right there. I know I'm falling, but I'm gonna, it's going to be okay because I'm going to land right there. Well, I just hit that and bounced off and fell another 50, 60 feet. It took Doug. How many of you remember Doug from way back? That young guy there is my best buddy uh, growing up. Uh, he saved my life that day. It took him 35, 40 minutes to climb down to me once I had fallen. The other guy in the blue sleeveless sweatshirt that was carrying the stretcher uh, out by the ambulance, he went on up to the top and ran and called for help. Um, when Doug got to me, he, he pried my foot out of a, out of a kind of a wedge, a little tree, kind of a wedge. Uh, I had hit and slid, and that, that tree had caught my ankle and kept me from another 40-foot drop, which probably would have finished me off probably, but I'll never forget feeling that feeling of seeing the sky and the trees and the rock and the sky and the trees and the rock and the sky. It was just kind of rolling as I was falling. And when I hit, it was just such a horrible sound. Later, Doug said, Mike, I thought, I thought you had taken a big rock and thrown it off and then went, ugh. Uh, he said, I thought you were trying to scare us. He said, but when I looked down and I saw you, he said, I realized it was real. Um, when he got down to me, uh, I had a hole in my chest. That was the scariest thing to me. My legs were numb. I didn't know if I could move. Well, I couldn't move them, but I didn't know what was going to happen down there. But I couldn't get my breath because I had a gaping hole about the size of a golf ball in my chest. He pulled my wallet out of my pants and he sealed that hole uh, with that leather wallet. And I was able to kind of spit up some blood and get it going. Now, I didn't know this at the time. Uh, it took, goodness, a good hour for anyone to reach us. There was a Rescue helicopter in Nashville that was grounded because of high winds. There was another one that flew out of Chattanooga, but it was up near Knoxville on another call. And so they decided to rappel down to us, bring their medicine and bring their stretcher. Uh, there was another crew that was cutting a path up from the bottom. Once they got to me, they loaded me in. They kind of taped me up here and there. Uh, they shot me full of, of, of IVs and some kind of, I guess, anti-infection kind of medicine. And they started carrying me down the mountain. And as soon as they came to one of those 100-foot bluffs, they'd, they'd lower me over the side. And I'd go all the way to the bottom until finally, after about five or six hours of doing this, they met up with the other team that then got me to the ambulance and took me to the Erlanger Medical Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's when the real fun began. Whatever the woman gave me in the needle on the mountain deadened all the pain. But when we got to the hospital some five, six, seven hours later, we started to realize the extent of my broken bones. I mean, I had broken ankles. I had broken bones in my legs. I had all these ribs were broken on this one side. I didn't know it then, but I had fractured a compression fraction, I think is what they call it vertebrae in my neck and in my lower back. That's why my feet were numb because of the swelling that was taking place along my spine. Uh, they did things to me in that emergency room that were just unspeakable. Uh, and I'll never forget them. I spent almost a month in ICU. Uh, people were taking care of me. They were feeding me. Uh, I then went home and spent another month in recuperation on the couch, basically, or in my bedroom. But after that, after that, I decided to try to salvage what was left of my, of my first year in college. So I went back for the next semester. I applied myself and worked really hard. I became a celebrity on the campus because everybody knew the guy that fell off Signal Mountain. Not to mention, when I went back to school, I was going around in a wheelchair, and I had one leg out straight, had casts on it, I had splints and other casts. I had bandages here and there and different things. Scars were healing up. 
Uh, and people would point to me uh, and, and they'd say, that's the guy that fell off Signal Mountain. And I got to meet the, the president and the chancellor of the school, the university, and, and they brought me up in, in chapel and they, they talked to me about it and, and told the story. They played some of that news footage. Uh, I was like a celebrity and it felt pretty good. Now, when we went out into the community, like guys do in college, we went bowling or we went out for pizza or we went to the mall. People who didn't know me would eventually ask, what happened to you? And we got so tired of saying, remember that guy that fell off Signal Mountain, you know, and they had to rescue him and everything, that's him. Wow, we got so tired of saying that, that eventually somebody would say, man, what happened to you? And my buddy Doug, he'd step up and he'd say, you remember that guy that fell off Signal Mountain, like 70, 80, 90 feet, broke everything? And he'd point to me and he'd say, he caught him. At that time in my life, here's what I thought as an 18-year-old follower of Jesus Christ. I thought God had done something pretty special for me. I thought God and I were were pretty tight. I thought God was smiling on this 18-year-old who had never had a drink, didn't smoke, never done a drug, and was a virgin. I thought, God and I must be tight. Again, like Paul in verses 4, 5, and 6. I didn't understand grace yet, but in my mind, that was a defining moment for me, and I thought I had passed with flying colors. I mean, I couldn't play ball anymore, but I would run, and I would walk, and eventually I'd play, you know, intramural basketball and intramural softball. With God, I knew that all things were possible. In my mind, what that event represented was a, was a new notation on my spiritual resume, Again, I thought God and I were tight. I didn't understand grace yet. Now, fast forward. Halfway through my education, uh, I never took less than 20 hours a semester. Typically, I took 21 to 23 because I wanted to cram six years of schooling into about four and a half. Halfway through that process, I married my high school sweetheart. She was the top of the pyramid to my quarterback of the football team. Uh, She was a homecoming queen. Uh, I was a homecoming king. Uh, she was that little girl that, 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 that parents wanted a little girl to grow up and be like. And, and we were leaders in the youth group, and, and, and people knew who we were, and, and we were madly in love, and we dated for three and a half years, and finally, at the age of 20 years and so many months, we tied the knot. And I was happy as a clam. Because in my mind, now there are three big things. There's God and Jesus. I'll follow him. There's my love for my wife, my high school sweetheart. And there's the work that we're going to do together in the future for the kingdom of God. Again, with God, all things were possible. And when we finally graduated, it took several months for us to zero in and find the perfect church opportunity for me to serve. It was a a pretty large church, a Southern Baptist church in Plant City, Florida. You ever heard of Plant City? It's known as the strawberry capital of the world. Uh, This was only about 15, 20 miles from where I grew up. So it was like returning home. The Cincinnati Braves had their spring training camp right there in Plant City. Uh, There was a big church that hired me to be their student minister and their minister of education. I had my own office for the first time. This was exciting. I remember unloading all my books and setting things up in my office. And the church secretary walked in on like my third day there. And she laid a magazine down on my desk. It was a youth worker magazine. And on the cover of this youth worker magazine, there was this stereotypical student minister, okay, if you can imagine, you know. Uh, He had a a whistle around his neck. Uh, He had like one of those fake arrows through his head. Uh, He was wearing, you know, the glasses that are like, woo, 
you know, spinning. And he was holding a rubber chicken. Okay. Uh, and the, the caption uh, under that article was this, don't become a wing it junkie. Well, I sat down and started reading. And the article was making an impassioned, an impassioned uh, plea for authentic ministry. The article said, look, you can fake your way through student ministry. You can, you can play enough games and, and, and eat enough pizza to make kids feel like somehow they belong, but that's not what you want. That's one of the reasons I appreciate Tyler so much. Tyler knows that. What you want is authentic ministry. You want authentic, real service for Christ. And so right there after I finished that article, I got down on my knees at my desk and I prayed a prayer that, that sounded a little bit like this. I said, God, I want to be real. I want to be real. I don't know what you have for me, what you want for me, but I'm going to give it my all. And I want you to be real. I want to be real. I don't want to turn off a young person or turn off a set of parents who think somehow I'm phony because they don't recognize any sort of authenticity in my faith. And I prayed that prayer. I was 23, 24 years old at the time. Little did I know, church, the chain of events that that was going to set into motion. I had no idea what was going to happen next. Let me read you something. Let's pick up where we left off. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Remember, Paul has just gone down his spiritual resume. Hey, pretty impressed. Pretty impressive, right? Look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Isn't it interesting how important being the quarterback is when you're 20 and how unimportant it is when you're 30 or 40 or 50? Isn't it, isn't it interesting how, how madly in love you were in the seventh grade or the, the ninth grade, but, but that's all very different and understood and processed quite differently when you're 25 and 30 and 35? Paul says, Everything that was a gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In other words, that long list of accomplishments, they mean nothing to me, Paul said. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now watch verse 10. I want to know Jesus. Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's more important to me now. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I even want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If you're going to be serious about your faith walk, if you're going to begin to process your story through these defining moments, you've got to get familiar with verse 10. Because your defining moments are not just positive, quite often they're negative. Every follower of Jesus Christ wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. That's why we pray. God bless grandma. God take care of my father-in-law. God look after my child. We want God to intervene in our circumstance and demonstrate the power of his resurrection. But nobody, myself at the top of the list, wants to participate in the fellowship of his sufferings. 
And up until this point in my life, I felt like I could relate to the power of Christ's resurrection. I fell off a mountain and lived to tell about it. I had been pretty good at most things I had tried, but all of that was about to change. I signed up at this church and I served less than a month, less than a month in a Southern Baptist church. And I got up one Sunday morning and my wife of three and a half years informed me she wasn't going to church. And I assumed she was ill. I assumed she didn't feel well. So I kissed her on the cheek. I said, okay, baby, I'll see you later. And I got dressed and I went to church. Well, when I got home that afternoon in the days following began to reveal something to me that I had never seen. It seemed that I had married someone who really didn't love me. It seemed like in her mind, we were way too young. We should have never taken that step at 20. She didn't love me and she certainly didn't want to be married to a minister. And before I knew it, she was gone. And I had been through some tough things in my life. I could tell you a lot more, but I've just pointed to a couple, but nothing, nothing was as brutal as that. When divorce papers were served to a 24-year-old minister who was optimistic and hopeful and bright-eyed and looking forward to the years to come, my whole life turned upside down. I had to resign the church because a lot of churches, you, don't, you can't be a minister if you've been divorced. I had to resign the church. And so I stood in front of this congregation. I hadn't even, hadn't even met them all. I knew very few of their names. And I had to read a letter of resignation. I've never been so humiliated in my life. And then I went home, went to work for my father, who had a business there in Brandon, who incidentally was trying to sell that business because he and mom wanted to retire to South Carolina. They had purchased a retirement home up near Spartanburg. And that was their idea of retirement. But the business just wouldn't sell. And further, their home just wouldn't sell. And so I guess in some way, God was working behind the scenes to give me a place to work because I went to work immediately for my father. And here's what my life consisted of for one solid year. I got up early. I went to work. I unlocked. I did my job for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. I ran home to my apartment. I sat and I waited for the phone to ring because I knew she was going to come around, but she never did. In the meantime, my parents decide they're going to go see my mom's sister in Augusta. Well, they usually went a certain way to Augusta, but this time they pulled out a map and they decided we're going to go a different way. Let's take a country route. They picked a road called 121, the Woodpecker Trail. They said, we're going to ride up 121. We've never been up this way through little towns like Metter and Millen and Waynesboro. And we're going to go see my sister that way. So sure enough, they did. They drove up on the way through Metter. There was a house for sale right on the corner. See it today. It's on the corner of South Lewis and Pine. Big, beautiful, old southern home with a three-quarter porch. Has a big flag in the front yard with a fountain. And there was a for sale sign in the yard. Well, my mom was big, big-time antique lover and houses. She said, oh, Glenn, oh, Glenn, let's just stop and look at it. It's so pretty. So they called the number, and the realtor met them, and they walked through this. Oh, Glenn, look at these wooden floors. Glenn, this house has six fireplaces. Dad's thinking, Peggy, wouldn't it be great retire to a little town like this? I could buy a gas station, pump gas, clean windshields. You could take care of this house. Well, they put all that away and they drove on up and spent the weekend with my, my aunt in Augusta. On the way back, they decided, let's stop and look at the house again. 
So they called the number, met the same real estate agent, and my dad went to the car, pulled out his checkbook, looked at my mom and said, let's put money down on this house. And just like that, they did. In an amazing turn of events, within two weeks, both my father's business sold, and so did his house. He's now moving to matter. His son is miserable in Brandon. My buddies and I, we packed him up in a big truck and we moved him up here and moved him into that historic home. And I went back to Metter and did, I mean, back to Florida and I stayed on promising the new owner six months. I'll stay for six months, introduce you to all the clients and be here to help you with employees and that sort of thing. Because I'd grown up in that business with my father. So one thing leads to another. At the end of six months, my dad calls me, he says, Michael, he says, retirement's not working out so well. Your mother can't stand me. He said, I'm under her feet all the time. He said, I'm going to buy a little business in Statesboro. He said, I want you to come up here and run it for me. He said, now, Michael, listen, listen, I know you're waiting for things to change. But look, you're only six hours up the road. If she wants you back, she can find you. You're only a phone call away. Why don't you come up here to this beautiful place and help me run this business? So sure enough, that's what I did. I rented a little tiny house out in someone's pond house, kind of out in the woods by a little pond. But unfortunately, I did the same thing I had done in Florida. I got up, I drove to Statesboro, went to work, I drove home, and I sat waiting for the phone to ring, but it never did. At this point, I knew who Jesus was, but I was not at all interested in going to church. At this point, you know, I needed more than a Sunday school lesson. As far as I'm concerned, the best use of my time was to get up early, come to work, work a hard day's work, go home, and wait for God to explain some things to me. And again, never seemed to happen. I'd get up, I'd go to work, I'd come home, and I'd wait, and nothing seemed to change. Well, meanwhile, I'm driving my mom and my dad insane, because their ministry son has now given up on church. They think I'm going to join a biker gang or something and start doing drugs on the side. I'm, they were scared to death, okay? Every spiritual person my mom could find, she'd send them to my house, go talk to my son, go talk to my son. Every preacher in Metter knocked on the door of that little pond house I was saying, introduced themselves and said, your mom sent me. Finally, it was like Mother's Day, I think. Might have been Easter. It was one of those big Sundays, and my dad said, Michael, why don't you come to church with your mama? Do it for your mama. I said, okay, I'll be there. So on that particular Sunday morning, I got my dressed up, put on my tie, and I walked into the First Baptist Church of Metter, Georgia. And I sat down next to my mommy and my daddy. And I felt a little humiliated because the big dog years earlier who accomplished and who succeeded, I felt like a failure. I felt broken. I felt embarrassed, I, almost humiliated. Well, we did what you do in church. We stood and we sang. We sat and we listened. We stood and we sang. And at one point in the service, the guy says, turn around and shake hands with your neighbor, just like we do here. And there was this silver-haired guy in front of me wearing a bright green, like a master's type green, sport jacket. And when he said, turn around and shake hands with your neighbor, he turned around. It was Michael Guido, the sower. Hi there, he said. I've been listening to you sing behind me, and I want to speak to you after the service. I didn't know, but that would actually be what got me back into ministry was Michael Guido. I wound up traveling around with him, Amy and I. We, we'd ride to this church and that church and the other church, and he'd speak and I'd sing, or, or he'd speak and I'd talk to young people. And, and it, was like, it was like chauffeuring Moses around. He just, he just poured it out, and it was so awesome. In that service that very day, when I turned around to shake hands with my neighbor, I locked eyes with the most beautiful blonde I had ever seen. 
And she was sitting there with her mommy and daddy. Because it turns out something similar had happened to her. And I wasn't into dating at that point, but man, she was hot. My buddies came up from Florida, and, and we'd ride around the campus of George Southern, all these cute college girls running everywhere, and they'd never, well, I don't see what your problem is. What's the problem, man? Look, look, she's pretty, look, she's pretty. But I wasn't interested in that. My dream had crumbled. My defining moment was bottoming out. So Amy and I, we met each other, but we didn't date. It took another year when my wife in Florida wound up marrying someone that I felt free to go ahead and date. The first person I went out with was that cute girl from Metter named Amy. I took her to Holiday Pizza, and back then, they only had three little tables. Hey, that's all I could afford at the time. <laughs> we ate a pizza, we had some baklava, and I drove her home. And from that moment till this moment, that's more than 27 years, she's been the love of my life. And what I realized by that whole thing is difficult as embarrassing, as humiliating, as harmful, as painful as it was, I would go through all of that again to know what I know now. See? Your defining moments, be they positive or be they negative, are not the moments that make you who you are, but it's the conclusions you draw regarding each that make you who you are. In fact, here's the way I would say it. My perspective determines my path. Did you notice in verses 7 and 8, Paul used the words consider three times. Three times. I now consider this, that. I used to think this was important, but now I consider it not. Okay? The word consider is a word of perspective. Paul's perspective changed, and so did mine. It's not the moment. It's not the abuse. It's not the failed marriage. It's not the bankruptcy. It's not the illness. That's not what defines you, church. It's the conclusions you draw that will. If you want to go after God, you've got to embrace verse 10. Because every defining moment in your life is either going to be positive or it's going to be negative. And the bottom line to this whole story, and there's so much more I could tell you, but I don't have enough time, is the prayer of a 24-year-old minister in his office when he said, God, make me a real minister was answered. Not the way I'd hoped, not the way I'd planned, not the way I even wanted, but the way God intended. Here's what I leave you with. God is attempting to redefine you using his moments. And the conclusions you draw regarding every one of them determines the path that you're on. Today, I've shared my story with you. But what about your story? What events, which events have served as defining moments in your life. Using your personal perspective that hopefully is shaped in the word of God, God wants to redefine you using his moments. And some of those moments are going to be exhilarating. They're going to be exciting. They're going to make sense. And others, none of the above. Others will not. The question is, what conclusions will you draw and what path will you take? Thank you for uh, putting up with this. I need to give a special thanks to John because John's heard this story at least five times. <laughs> oh, the sarcasm I dealt with this past week as I told him what I was going to do. <clears throat> uh, but thank you for listening. Again, it's not as important to me that you remember my story, but that you remember God's story in each of us. Okay, let's pray. Father, I'm very grateful uh, 
that you have a plan for our lives. And I am very thankful that just about the time I'm ready to say, forget it, there is no plan, there's no way of following it, it doesn't exist, you reveal a little something that keeps me inclined to follow. Father, my faith is weak. I think many of us would say that when circumstances change and things go sour, it is just so easy to doubt, it's so easy to get frustrated and angry. God, I thank you for the guidance you've provided in my life, even when I didn't know it was there. As I look back now, the pieces fit together seamlessly, and I'm so very grateful. Father, for the moments in my life and the moments in our lives that you're using to define us, I pray, I pray you will give us wisdom to draw the proper conclusions from those moments that we might choose the right path. I pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Thank you for your time this morning. Make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.